You can be seated. Eight to ten-year-olds don't go anywhere. In case you didn't get the memo, your class is not meeting this morning. Glad to have you in here. We've got a feast of three chapters of Isaiah for you. All right. Turn, if you will, to Isaiah 2. Welcome to those of you visiting. We don't normally do three chapters at a time, but here you are and here we are. Isaiah 2 to 4, I've entitled this message, Motivations for Walking in the Light of the Lord. I know it says something else in your worship guide, but that was done Thursday and this was done this morning. So, (laughs) Motivations for Walking in the Light of the Lord. When I say light of the Lord, and when you see that in the passage this morning, think of the favor of God, think of the presence of God, the care of God. That's what Isaiah is getting at when he talks about the light of the Lord. Light is beneficial. The people of Judah are really operating as if they didn't have the light with them. The light of the Lord had shown his face on them, but they were shifting over to darker things. And so he motivates them in chapters 2 to 4 to walk in the light of the Lord. And he does so in three ways. He motivates them in three ways. And so our outline for this morning will be three motivations for walking in the light of the Lord. And I'll read through the text as we go through it this morning. But he starts off in chapter 2 verses 1 to 5. And here's the first motivation for walking in the light of the Lord. Observe others who are eagerly learning from the Lord. Observe others who are eagerly learning from the Lord. If we're honest, as Christians, we can sometimes have moments of despair, spiritual lethargy, darkness, being dry spiritually, whatever term you've used. We know those terms. All the followers of God, apart from Christ himself, knew those terms, dryness, weakness, despair. And sometimes we can even be tempted to turn to other saviors, I'll put that in quotes, other things to help us feel secure, help us feel loved, help us feel satisfied. But those things aren't intended to be our saviors. And so in God's goodness, He allows some of those things to crumble and to show that they are not to be considered our saviors or our our satisfiers. So we know times of weakness, times of dryness, and it's Isaiah 2 to 4 that could help encourage us and motivate us. And so again, three motivations for walking in the light of the Lord, the first being observe others who are eagerly learning from the Lord. The Lord has just rebuked Judah, we saw that last week in chapter 1, rebuked His people, those claiming to be His people, for not walking as if they were his people. And so he uses this prophecy about a future day, even future to us, a future day where the nations will flood into Jerusalem and Gentiles, get that people of Judah, Gentiles will say, let's go and learn from the Lord and follow his ways. The reason Isaiah gives this prophecy, the reason God gives this prophecy is to get the attention of Judah. Look at the Gentiles. They'll be flooding to Jerusalem one day. You are meant to be the people walking in the light of the Lord. There's a motivation there. So again, this is found in 
chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Observe others who are eagerly learning from the Lord. I'll read 2, 1 to 5, and then we'll go through and explain it. Obviously, we're doing three chapters. We're not going to drill down as deeply as we normally do because I want, to get, I want you to see the argument of the three chapters clearly. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow into it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. See what he's doing there? Look into the future. One day those people that you fear all around you, the, the, the worldly people, there are going to be some of them that go up to Jerusalem to hear from God himself and to change their ways. It's going to make them more peaceful even. And you're over here disregarding the Lord, despising Him, forsaking Him. That's why this section ends with verse 5. O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. Notice verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days, a, a day later than Isaiah's prophesying in. And the question in chapters 2 through 4 and elsewhere in Isaiah is, as we go through this, we'll ask ourselves often, when is this going to happen? Has it already happened? Well, like most prophecies, most things written in the Old Testament and the the prophets, there are going to be near and far fulfillments of this. So, it's certainly true that after Judah went into exile in Babylon, They came back under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah. They rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt the walls. And there was a certain part of this that meant that they were coming and they were going to be safe again in their home. And even people from different nations would come and learn from the Lord. And then when Jesus came, when Jesus came to earth, he went to his own people. They largely rejected him. And so he took his ministry to the Gentiles. And Gentiles, nations came to Jesus, even literally coming to him in Jerusalem. So there's a, there's a partial fulfillment of this prophecy. But certainly we know that one day it will be true. After the Lord returns, he will set up his reign and people from all over the world will come to learn from him. He will rule. There will be peace like never before. And so that's certainly a time when this prophecy will be fulfilled. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. The thing to understand about this time period, the gods of all the nations were said to live on top of their mountains. So you go to one people group and the mountains that they had, their gods lived there and people would go up to worship the gods. Well, Isaiah is saying, clearly here, one day everyone's going to see 
that God's dwelling place, God's mountain, God's rule is the highest of all the nations. That's what he's saying here. And the nations, notice the end of verse 2, shall flow into it. That word flow is water language, river language. Now, rivers don't flow up mountains, do they? They flow down mountains. So, this is Isaiah saying something supernatural is going to happen. The nations will flow up to the dwelling place of God, looking to learn from Him and to walk in His ways. Verse 3, and many peoples shall come and say, here's what they'll say as they're going up, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, so that He may teach us His ways and that we may walk in His paths. Notice, they're not just going to learn from God. They're going to learn so that they then walk in the way he calls them to. So it's teaching their mind and then their actions will follow. That's why we, we have seen already, and we'll get to in a moment, that's why they stop warring against one another. Because they've learned the ways of God and now they're putting them into practice. They're beating their weapons into farming instruments. They don't need weapons anymore because they learn from the Lord and they understand how to treat one another. But notice, this is a prophecy of people from all over the world going to learn from Israel's God, from Judah's God. Judah is not currently learning from their God. But one day people from all over the world will go and learn from Judah's God. And notice, these people aren't just going themselves to learn from God. They're inviting others to go and learn from God. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. See, in the Old Testament, you can see that Israel and Judah were meant to be a kingdom of priests to the nations. They were meant to show God off to the nations. Well, they're not doing that here. And they're also not doing that right now. They'll go to the nations and they'll invite people to come and worship the God of Jacob. Verse 4, he, speaking of Christ, prophecy of Christ, he shall judge between nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares. He would solve the problem of Ukraine and Russia. He would solve China and Taiwan. And one day in the future, he will do that. That's the prophecy here. Their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither the, shall they learn war anymore. I've, so many American politicians have quoted this passage about their own administration. I, I, I look forward to a time where we can help the nations to beat their swords into plowshares. Well, with all due respect, Mr. President... <laughs> That is not a prophecy about you. That is something that will be true of Jesus Christ one day. He will actually accomplish this. It'll be the final peace treaty to end all peace treaties. This is what's going to happen one day. But notice why God is telling us this. Notice why God is telling Judah this. Because they're meant to see into the future the nations coming to their God. And that's meant to, in the words of Revelation, or sorry, Romans chapter 11, that's meant to make them jealous. Look at the relationship these people have with our God. 
they're more excited to learn from him and walk in his ways than we are. That's why verse 5 says, O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. Because they haven't been. There's a great picture of this in Jesus' ministry. Those of you studying the Gospel of John in small groups have either seen this already or will see it soon. In chapter 11 of the Gospel of John, we get this turning point in the book, don't we? He's been going to his own people, and his own people have been largely rejecting him. He's been going to the Jews. He's been showing them the connections from the Old Testament to his life. He's been doing only the things that God can do. He's been showing them this. And in John chapter 11, there's actually, again, this turning point where because of their rejection of him, this statement is made in 1154. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness. He turned and left. No more public ministry to the Jews. They'd largely rejected him. Now, there was a remnant that had been following him. The remnant is part of Isaiah's prophecy also, but largely his own people rejected him. And so, in the very next chapter of the Gospel of John, people from a different part of the world come to Jesus, and guess where they come and find him? In Jerusalem. This is a partial fulfillment of what Isaiah 2 has told us. Listen to this, John 12, 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast, that's in Jerusalem, were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, here's what the Greeks said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. It's a fulfillment, a partial fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 2 in Jesus' own time. His own people didn't receive him, but the nations would. People from all over the nations will come to look for, learn from, walk in the ways of Jesus Christ. We are a fulfillment of that. If you are a Gentile, a non-Jew, your story, your salvation story is part of this prophecy. You've come to Jesus to learn from Him and to walk in His ways. Picture the most ungodly person you know. Don't nudge them, okay? <laughs> Picture the most ungodly person you know. Now picture them eagerly running to the Lord and telling other people, come, let's learn from Him and let's walk in His ways. You thinking of that person doing that sometimes serves as a motivation, can serve as a motivation for you to say, now, look at their eagerness to follow after the Lord. What am I doing here? Look how eager they are to learn from Him and to walk in His ways, and look at who they were. Now they want Him so bad, and I've been one of His children. This is a good motivation for me to remember, that's right. I want to learn from Him. I want to walk in His ways. And so, Isaiah gives this prophecy to Judah as a way to motivate them. Look at the nations and the fact that they will go after your king. Now you walk in the light of the Lord. There's a second motivation, and this is found in 
chapter 2, 6 through 4, 1. So most of our text this morning. Here's a second motivation. Consider the destructive consequences of following other saviors. He's going to tell Judah not just what the nations will do one day as they come to the Lord, but he's going to prophesy about what's going to happen soon and later on, by the way, as they continue to reject their God and to turn to other saviors. And it's really a sad portion of Scripture. The Lord will not allow anyone to be the Savior of His people other than Himself. And He will show that all of these man-made things and people that they're trusting in will come to an end. And He's good to show us that this morning. He's good to remind us that your hopes in career, health, body image, friendships, marriage, all of those are not to be saviors. He is the one to put your trust in. So again, we'll, we'll go through this pretty quickly. And what I'll do is I'll tell you about kind of every paragraph coming up. Just this is what you're going to see from these next verses I'm going to read, and then we'll keep going. So here in 2, 6 through 11, you're going to see God's people. Again, I put that in quotes. God's people suffering for looking elsewhere for security. It doesn't benefit them. Verse 6, for you, Isaiah is speaking to God here, for you have rejected your people. Now, there's still a remnant that's going to be saved. We'll see that later on in the passage. But largely, this people have rejected him, so he's rejecting them. Not finally, again, he saves a remnant, but the picture is he's rejecting them because they're rejecting him. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. And they strike hands with the children of foreigners. They're looking for political security from other nations. Verse 7, their land is filled with silver and gold, and there's no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there's no end to their chariots. So the people of Judah aren't entirely suffering yet. They've got political alliances. They've got wealth. They've even got armaments. Looks like they're doing pretty well. They're not. Verse 8, their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the works of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them, Isaiah says. These people don't deserve forgiveness. Verse 10, enter into the rock, Isaiah says to the people of Judah. Hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Isaiah is warning the people of Judah, saying, there's a day coming when you should run and hide in caves because God's anger is going to be unleashed upon you. He's going to say that two more times. Go down to verse 19. And people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord. And from the splendor of his majesty. Go down to verse 21. To enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs. Isaiah is trying to get these people's attention. He's trying to show them this is where the Lord is going to bring his terror upon those who reject him. 
And he wants them to know this so they'd stop messing around with other saviors. They've got a good king. They've got a good savior who will provide them light, security, protection, everything they need. If they continue to reject him, this is their future. The New Testament picks this up. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, they will suffer destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Revelation 6 talks about people who will not turn to Jesus Christ, who are crawling into caves to get away from his wrath. Starting in verse 12, you see that the high ones, the ones that make themselves high, could have been these people from Judah who thought, look at how wealthy we are, look at how secure we are, look at our... Look at our genius political maneuvers to create safety for ourselves. They're thinking of themselves as high and lofty and proud. But in 12 through 20, we're going to see that people who seek to build themselves up, make themselves something apart from the Lord, will be brought low. Notice all the contrasting language, the high and low language in these verses. For the Lord of hosts has a day. This is that coming day of the Lord when he judges his enemies. The Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty. That's high language. Against all that is lifted up and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars, high glorious trees of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up. Against all the oaks, strong, the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, against every fortified wall. These nations and the people of Judah think of themselves as high and strong and secure and majestic. Verse 16, against all the ships of Tarshish, there's money flowing in and out, trade going on, they're wealthy. Against all the beautiful craft, And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, brought low. And the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away. And people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground. Even even there, notice the being brought low language. Ducking to enter a cave or going into a hole in the ground. They were once lofty and proud. Now they're crawling into holes. You think of Saddam Hussein, right? High and lofty palaces, trying to overtake this people and that people and control resources, making himself high. He ends up being found, cowering in a hole in the ground and executed. Crawling into these holes in the ground from before the terror of the Lord, from the splendor of his majesty, when he rises to terrify the earth, Pride never works. Making yourself the center, trying to secure yourself by your ingenuity, by your wealth, by your career, that never ends up working. And by God's grace, he will discipline his people before a final judgment so that they would learn those lessons. So they wouldn't experience this final judgment. But this is where The proud are going if they don't repent. And then verse 20, people will actually start throwing away those things that they once held on to. This career actually got me nowhere with the Lord. 
this hope and desire I had, this thing that I prided myself after, they're throwing it down because it didn't satisfy them. Verse 20, in that day mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold. They love their idols of silver and gold right now. But in that day they'll throw them away, which they made for themselves to worship to the moles and the bats. They're throwing them down to the moles and the bats. To enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the hills from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. He's clearly in charge of the earth. He's clearly the strong one. Not the Philistines. Not the people from the east. Not us with our own ingenuity. No, he's clearly the strong one. So the application for this section is right here in verse 22. Okay? Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath for of what account is he don't put your trust in any man-made thing career wealth security weapons intelligence other people your relationships they do not deserve your trust as saviors many of them are good gifts to be enjoyed, but they are not to replace your trust in your God. Chapter 3, verse 1. For behold, the Lord of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply and all support of bread and all support of water. He, he's going to show these people that the things they trust in don't actually save them. He shows them with a rather difficult situation. He, he removes all of their comfort. He's taking away the mighty man, verse 2, and the soldier. So even the people that kept them safe are going away. The judge and the prophet, the ones that should be pointing the people in the right direction, are being taken away. The diviner and the elder, the one that they went to to read the stars and help to show them which way to go. They put their security in those people. And older people who should be pointing them to God, he's taking that all away. The captain of 50 and the man of rank. Those in high authority, militarily speaking, and just the average soldier taking both away. The counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms. He's taking it all away to show them there's nowhere else to go for salvation other than me. And then he's going to show them in very explicit language that he's actually going to give them leaders that will fail them. You know when God's judging a people, disciplining a people, when he gives them leaders like these. Verse 4, and I will make boys their princes. Who should be the princes? Who should be those in charge? The ones with wisdom, the ones who are mature, grown up. But boys will be their princes, and infants shall rule over them. And the people will oppress one another. So the problem isn't just with the leadership of this group. The people themselves are at each other's throats. Everyone his fellow and everyone his neighbor. Those are the ones that they're oppressing. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. There's no respect for 
the older, the mature, the wise. Verse 6, for a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father saying, you have a cloak, a sign of leadership. You have a cloak, you shall be our leader. And this heap of ruins will be under your rule. They're just looking for anyone to guide them out of this tragic situation they're in. Hey, you've got a heartbeat. You rule over this heap of ruins. I wonder if they'll want to. Verse 7, in that day he'll speak out saying, I will not be a healer. No thanks, I don't want the job. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me the leader of this people. Now again, all of you are thinking of America right now. I would encourage you not to do that first as we go through Isaiah. When the people of God are rebuked, the new covenant people of God should look back and say, is any of this true of us in any way? I think you can all point to spiritual leaders you've known that have acted like infants, oppressed people under their care. We can also look at the way the church treats one another today. All too often. It's no surprise in the last few years there's been a record, there have been a record number of pastors getting out of the ministry. I don't want to do this anymore. If this is the way that people of God treat one another, I don't want to be part of this. Certainly we know this is true in our culture out there. Children being leaders, that makes a lot of sense. We see that. Petulant, selfish, arrogant children. But this sometimes is true in the church today as well. People oppress one another. Childish leaders act like infants. Bully people. It's sad. The Lord's trying to get our attention. Verse 8. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. Notice he's still there watching. He knows. He sees it. Revelation 2 and 3, he walks among his lampstands, among his churches. He knows them. And as we studied in 1 Corinthians when the church becomes like the world and starts treating one another wrongly and destroying one another, tearing down one another, as 1 Corinthians says, he will destroy those who destroy his church. The Lord knows what's going on. So when we look for other saviors, look for other remedies to satisfy us, fight against one another, try to, try to cozy up to the world to be so that they'll like us, whatever it may be. Consider the destructive consequences of following other saviors. He continues on in 3.9. The people of God are even parading their sin as if they were in Sodom, like Sodom paraded their sin. Verse 9, for the look on their faces bears witness against them. They, pro they proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they've brought evil on themselves. And then this. I'm so thankful for verse 10 at a time like this. Like, enough already. 
Verse 10, tell the righteous. Now, here's the remnant. Not everyone in Judah is doing all these things. There's a remnant, and God knows that. So, He wants Isaiah to give them a message. This is so sweet of the Lord. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them. He's talking about the day of the Lord, climbing into rocks and holes and caves. Listen, you tell that righteous remnant, though. They're going to see a lot of suffering. Tell them that it will be well with them, for they shall eat of the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. It's at this point I need you to understand this. In 310, he says, tell the righteous it'll be well with them. You're seeing God look at Judah, rebuke Judah, and then go to Isaiah and say, tell that righteous remnant, I I want them to know it's going to be well with them. You see the heart of God there for his people, his true people. The question to ask is, who's the remnant today? Am I those people, is God telling me go hide in caves? Or am I the righteous remnant? I don't always feel righteous. Who who is the remnant today? Turn over to Romans 3. Romans 3, Paul's now in the third chapter of showing how sinful this world is in Romans 3. Started in Romans 1, verse 18. Clearly, the world is full of sin. He went to Romans 2 and showed that even the moral people, even the moralist is in sin because he actually does the same thing the world does. It's just probably a little bit more hidden. And then he says this in 3.9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And then he summarizes all of the ways that we're under sin in verses 10 through 18. And then verse 21, there's some good news. But now, the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. You don't get righteousness by obeying the law perfectly. That ship has sailed. No one does that. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through, how do I get this righteousness? Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's the remnant. There's the righteous ones. So back to Isaiah 3. When God tells Isaiah, encourage that righteous remnant, tell them that it will be well with them. We know that that righteous remnant is all who believe in Jesus Christ. We're the righteous remnant. As the righteous remnant, when we see or feel our hearts wandering off into other saviors, we go, no, no, hold on. I know what's coming to those who do that. I know what's coming to those that put their faith in their skill, their ingenuity, their money, their resources, their looks. I know what's coming to that group. My faith is in the Lord. This is the reminder for us. We are the remnant. Don't go astray. Keep walking in the light of the Lord. Then in verse 12, 
The Lord will punish the ungodly leaders of his people. My people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. Again, is this maybe a nod back? Just a few kings ago, there was a king in Israel, and his mom, Athaliah, was behind his rule pulling the strings behind him. He was acting like an infant oppressor, and she was the one really governing behind him. Perhaps a reference to something like that. My people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you, and they've swallowed up the course of your paths. So even the leadership God's in- God intends, strong, protective, guiding leadership is not done. Leaders actually oppress their people to get to gain from it, and sometimes there are wicked women behind that. This is what the Lord is saying. The Lord, verse 13, has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who've devoured the vineyard, the spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean? What, what are you doing by crushing my people? Every abusive religious leader will stand face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. What are you doing crushing my people by grinding the face of the poor? The picture of just taking a poor one in need, needing leadership, needing help and comfort, and taking their face and grinding it in the ground. But I love this. The Lord knows that. Nothing escapes him. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor? And then appropriately, this says, declares the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the powerful Lord. And then in verse 16 through chapter 4, verse 1, we learn about more of God's judgment, and it's a judgment on the wicked women of Judah. The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly. So these, these women, these wicked women of Judah are arrogant, proud, boastful. That's what's in their heart. There's even a seductive nature to them. The Lord's going to do something about this. Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes mincing as they go along, tinkling with their feet. Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion. The Lord will lay bare their secret parts. He'll make them ashamed, bring them low instead of them bringing themselves up. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the scarves. And ladies, just just to calm you, The jewelry isn't the problem. It's the haughtiness, glancing wantingly. It's the sin in the heart. But they used all of those things to parade themselves and to allow this wickedness to come out. Verse 18, In that day the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, their crescents, the pendants, the bracelets and scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, and the amulets. Amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the feastal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, and the handbags. Yeah, I know, I know. 
the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. This is, this is going to happen one day. The proud and the arrogant and the seductive will always be brought low and judged for the harm they do to others unless they would turn back and trust the Lord and walk in His ways. And then there will be a lack of people to help provide care for them, security for them. Verse 25, your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle and her gates shall lament and mourn. So because of the judgment of God, there will be war and men won't come home from war. Verse 4, or sorry, chapter 4. And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes, only let us be called by your name and take away our reproach. There won't be enough men to provide and care for and protect the women. So the women end up crying out, saying, Pick me, you don't even have to spend money on me. I'll provide for myself. That's not the way it's meant to be. The women are meant to be cared for, protected, provided for, nurtured, loved. But in judgment, they won't be. They're destructive consequences for following other saviors. I wonder if you could, in your mind, finish this sentence. I will feel safer when. And whatever you finish that sentence with, be careful. When the next election turns the way I want it to, be careful. Leaders come and go. The Lord always sits on His throne. I will feel safer when I have a better income. Be careful. God knows what you need. He will give you your daily bread. Be careful of trying to look for other saviors. I will feel safer when these pills work. Be careful. They're not the savior. Now, all of those things may be good gifts and helps to help mitigate the effects of the curse. We are thankful for things that do provide us some security. Fences, dogs, And we're thankful for things like that. Medical advancement, we're thankful for things like that. But none of them are to be saviors or thought of as saviors. The Lord cares for His people. He knows how to care for His people. So be careful of how you answer the question, I will feel safer when, or I will be happier when. If the answer to those questions are a person or a scenario, or a status, brother, sister, be careful. I'll remind you again of the application for this section, chapter 222. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. Why does he say it that way? Because God created them. Trust the creator, not a creature. So God's people can be temporarily allured by the world Allured with worldly power, allured with military might, allured with the hope of a human leader, allured, fascinated by being attractive to others, 
or even drawing others to ourselves. We can be allured by finding security in another person, in a relationship. Some of those things are sinful. Some aren't in and of themselves. But all of them can become idols when we place our trust in something or someone who is temporary. Stop trusting in created, created beings and look to the Creator. Place your heart in His hands. Reminded of what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, cast all your anxieties on the Lord because He cares for you. Your Creator cares for you. Find your security and safety in Him. Well, there's a third and final motivation for walking in the light of the Lord. It's found in chapter 4, 2 to 6. Remember that God's people will be cleansed and protected finally one day. There's a coming day when it will be shown that before Him, we are clean, we are pure before Him. And we will finally be protected from anything to harm us. This is talked about in verses 2 to 6 of chapter 4. God wants His people to be confident about a coming day when it's shown that they are purified and protected by Him from all harm. Verse 2, in that day, again, a day coming, the branch of the Lord, this is Messianic language. Think of Jesus here when you hear branch of the Lord, the one that comes out from the Lord. So there's a divine nature to this. The Lord brings out a branch, something that's going to give life and fruit and health. The Lord himself is going to have a branch that comes from him. Again, this is Jesus' language, Messianic language, Jesus coming from the Father. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. Now, we've just talked about a group of people sinfully wanting themselves to be seen as beautiful and glorious. They don't compare to this one. Jesus Christ, the beautiful one, the glorious one. One day he'll come from the Lord. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Fruit of the land here, you can capitalize that, capital F, fruit of the land. That's speaking of the Messiah himself. So he's a branch from the Lord. He's also the fruit of the land. This speaks to his humanity. Jesus came from the Jews, came from Bethlehem, came like a man comes born. So he comes from God and he comes from the land, comes from man. He is going to be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel, the remnant, the people of God. It's, we have a lot of titles that the scripture uses for Jesus. This is one that we often don't think of. He's the fruit of the land. He's my pride and honor. He's where I place my pride and honor. I place that all in him. Look at who he is for us. Look at who he is for me. One day he's going to come. Guess what? Eight centuries after this prophecy, a baby was born in Bethlehem. The fruit of the land, the branch of the Lord came for his people, which includes us. Verse 3. 
And he who has left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem, again, remain, that, that's a remnant language. He who's left in Zion, who hasn't been judged and disciplined, destroyed, he who's left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, separate, different. Everyone who's been recorded for life in Jerusalem. This is a beautiful picture. Kings would record their citizens in a book. They knew who was in their kingdom, who wasn't. We have our names written in our king's book. And that book is said to be recorded in Jerusalem. Our birth certificate, my birth certificate, indicates that I was born in Stockton, California. And that is true. It happened 46 years ago. But there's another sense that I was born in Jerusalem. My king came to Jerusalem. He will rule finally from a new Jerusalem. And I will be one of his citizens. My book, my name, my birth certificate shows that I belong to Jerusalem, to the king of Jerusalem. Yours does too, if you're in Christ. And that's what this is saying. There's coming a day when it will be very clear to all that we are his. Psalm 87, just kind of in passing, in Psalm 87 there's this prophecy about a coming day when it will be said, this one was born in Jerusalem, that one was born in Jerusalem. This, this wonderful, glorious day when we say, look, our names are recorded here. We're His. It's a beautiful prophecy in Psalm 87. Verse 4, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of of burning. There's a washing of God's people that happens. We're born into sin, we engage in sin, we're sinners, and then He washes us clean, and one day it'll be shown that the clean ones will be with Him. Not because we were the ones to make ourselves clean, but that He ultimately cleansed us. It'll be shown that we are clean, we are pure, we are righteous, and it says, from the midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Here's what we should know. To a degree, this has already happened. When you repent of your sin and turn to Jesus Christ, Titus chapter 3 says that you've been purified. Our status right now is that we are the righteous ones, we're the purified ones. Now, we also know that He's currently making us righteous and purifying us. And there's a reason it says, he calls that a spirit of burning because it doesn't always feel good. So we are righteous before him. He is also burning off the dross as we speak to make us look more and more like his son. And there's a day coming when all of that will be shown to be true. Look at those pure people. Look at those righteous people. Look what God has done. It's a good reminder for us. Friends, we're not there yet. We are considered righteous before God, but He's still doing a work of burning off our dross. All the difficulties you go through are part of His refining. I think that's helpful for us to see sometimes. We are so, myself included, we do not like to suffer in any way. And so we sometimes try to avoid suffering 
again, nothing wrong with that in and of itself, but we avoid the suffering and sometimes forget that this is part of what God has to cleanse us and to show us there's no other place to look. There's no other place to look for hope. There's no other place to trust other than Him. Lord, if you need, discipline us so that we would look more and more like your Son. Be gracious as you burn away that dross. Verse 5, then the Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. This is Exodus language, isn't it? His people were protected and guided by the pillar of cloud and fire. They, they were, there was a guidance there, a protection there. One day, the people of God will be finally protected, finally provided, no enemies in sight. This is what the people of God are looking forward to. Verse 6, there will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for refuge and shelter from the storm and rain. Again, nothing more to harm them. Can you imagine a time when Satan is destroyed, there's no temptation to fight? When all temptations removed, when anything that harms or destroyed is gone, taken away, this is that time that's talked about. So God's people must remember that they will be washed and protected by Him in the future. So child of God, live faithfully now. Trust in your God. It's good to identify the things that we can put too much trust in and hope in that are not God. Remember, the nations will one day stream to Jerusalem to learn from the Lord. Let that remind us to walk in His ways now. What a privilege that we have to actually know that Lord. He speaks to us. He guides us. He loves us. And remember that you are washed already. You are being protected already, but one day you will be free from all trouble when Christ comes to rule on this earth and bring us to the new heavens and the new earth. So keep your heart away from false saviors and created things for security. I'll end with this poem by John Donne. Some of you know him as the poet. He wrote this poem, and in, in it, he's got a stanza, which I'll read to you. Basically, he's telling the Lord, asking the Lord, discipline me if I need it so that I would find everything in you because nothing else will satisfy. A few simple lines. Don writes, take me to you. Imprison me. For I, unless you enthrall me, will never be free. It's a great way to end our time this morning. Let's pray. Father, show us your people, your remnant, that we can sometimes be lured by false securities, false scenarios, false situations, things that do not satisfy or ultimately save 
keep us as a body learning from you, not just coming to church, going to Bible study, opening our Bibles, but eager to learn from you so that we may walk in your ways, make us more obedient as we enjoy this relationship we have with you. Father, do not allow anyone here to turn from you and to look for satisfaction or security in anything else. Keep us fixed on who you are. In this passage, you're clearly powerful. You clearly care for your people. Remind us of those things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.